Flow Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicware on Instagram at Picnicware, and that's where W E A R, and at www.picnicware.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things, always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope ass shit for dope ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer, but Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. 
To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Wide-eyed vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-eyed vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. Find us on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that spends a lot of time thinking about trash. I'm your host, Amanda. Well, as you know, January is trash month here at Clothes Horse, which is always the best way to begin a new year. And I'm pretty excited about it because I actually love learning and thinking about waste and why it happens, how we can waste less, you know, just some trash thinking around here. Which is why I'm so excited about today's guest, Anna Sachs, who you might know as the Trash Walker on Instagram and TikTok. I stumbled across Anna on Instagram and I was like immediately blown away by her videos exposing waste by large corporations, especially companies that direct employees to destroy and throw out otherwise perfectly fine products just because they didn't sell. This can include food, hygiene products, paper goods, furniture, candles, clothes, you name it. And to be clear, this is a very common practice. Ask anyone who's worked retail, they have some stories for you. But despite it being so common, it's really kept extremely hush-hush. So you might not even know about it. And we're talking some like really egregious waste. Anna will give some examples in this episode, and you should definitely start following her on Instagram and TikTok so you can see more because it's going to change the way you think about a lot of retailers and brands that you probably shop right now. I'll share links to find her on social media in the show notes. Don't worry, you don't have to memorize it right now. Today's episode will be the first half of our conversation with the second half coming on Sunday. A few people have reached out recently to ask me why I don't offer merchandise like teas and tote bags. I'm sure if you're a podcast maniac like me, you have heard a lot of other podcasts offering these kinds of things. Even the other day, this is what kind of triggered me to put this in this episode, Dustin mentioned that he saw someone on Instagram wearing a tea from one of my favorite podcasts. I won't say the name here only because I don't want them to feel bad. That's how much I love this podcast. Most of this podcast gear comes from places like Pod Swag and Tea Public. Those names definitely sound familiar to you if you listen to as many podcasts as I do. These companies are print on demand, and that means they print the garment when the customer buys it. So they just kind of have the blanks on shelves there. They pull the tea, they pull the tote, whatever it is that you ordered, and they send it to the direct-to-garment printer. 
I'm not going to go into too much detail about that here because I have an episode coming up in a few weeks with a graphic tea expert that will explain all of this a lot more. But essentially, the podcasters don't actually have to do anything but design the graphics. And then PodSwag or TeePublic, they print it and ship it all. Then the podcasters get a cut of the sale, which can be, to be honest, a great source of income for podcasters, especially if you're the kind of podcast that doesn't do commercials. I don't feel right doing this for Clothes Horse because... I don't have any insight into the supply chains of these companies, and I'm assuming, based on my experience and my knowledge of how that industry works, that the teas are printed on off-the-shelf blanks, that's what we call them, that are probably made under unethical conditions. You know I can't sell you something when I don't know how much each worker was paid. I mean, just thinking about that makes me really upset. That doesn't mean like that I'm trying to disparage podcasts that do sell that merch because once again, I understand why they do it. Podcasting is a lot more work than you think it's going to be before you start a podcast of your own. And, you know, you want to get paid for your time, right? This selling the swag, if you will, is one way to get there. Now, could I, Amanda, host of Clothes Horse, develop a line of totally unethical teas and merch that you would totally want to buy? Of course. I mean, that's what I've been doing for my whole career. And in fact, in most of my roles, graphic tees have been one of my categories, but it didn't feel right for me then. And it definitely doesn't feel right for me right now. I also just don't know if you need a clothes horse tee, to be honest. I understand how it's great to show the world the things that you believe in and support. And it can help you meet other like-minded people. So I get that. I mean, that's why we wear band tees, right? I wear tons of band tees. I have a whole rolling rack of them practically upstairs. But if there was a way I could ethically make merch that you would promise to wear and treasure for a long time, and it would be fully recyclable, like closed loop, and you could even send it back to me when you're done with it, and then I could turn it into something else, well, then I would do it. I I think. I don't know. You know what I mean? I I have thought about this in a lot of different ways and I just, I know that I don't want to do it with any of these direct-to-garment printer people because there's too much unknowing and the quality of the product probably isn't going to be that great. So it's not going to last you for a long time. But then again, if I can make something better, I don't know if I want to do that either. I guess I'm interested in hearing your thoughts here. I mean, maybe you even have a suggestion here. Or I would also just love to hear what you think about, you know, podcast merchandise, yay or nay. Also, podcast merchandise is such an awkward and like unappealing phrase. <laughs> but yeah, share your thoughts with me because I would, I would love to know, do you have any swag from other podcasts? Additionally, Close Horse doesn't have commercials outside of the Pegasus Patreon shoutouts, and it's for a very similar reason. I could only in good faith accept ad money from brands that were doing everything the right way or at least trying their hardest to get there, and there are companies out there like that that I totally believe in and support myself, but so far none of those brands have reached out to me yet. I just don't think Close Horse is big enough yet, but maybe someday. Until then... If I want to make a living off of Clothes Horse, 
I have to rely on Patreon and Venmo donations. That's just how it is. And I know that this is a plausible path because my favorite podcast, okay, I'll just tell you, my favorite podcast is called You're Wrong About. And it's what really inspired me to start Close Horse. And honestly, I I like dream of being on their show where I debunk some sort of fashion or greenwashing thing. That would be a dream come true for me. They have thousands of patrons, so they're actually making a living off their podcast. They've been around longer than Clothes Horse, but they make me feel like I can get there if I keep working. If you would like to support Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash clotheshorsepodcast. I'll include that link in the show notes. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also Venmo me at crystal underscore visions. In fact, today I had a lovely conversation with Anne-Marie Beam via Instagram, and she is now officially a Close Horse supporter via Venmo. So thank you so much, Anne-Marie. Of course, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. There are so many other ways that are super impactful that you can support Close Horse without spending a dime, like leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you could share our content all designed by yours truly, on Instagram, or even just suggest us to your friends and coworkers. I've actually noticed that a lot of you are getting your moms hooked on the show, and that makes me really, really happy. (laughs) This is just a side note, and it only has to do with mothers and daughters, has nothing to do with podcasting, but it makes me think of when Dustin and I took the Hello Kitty Shinkansen, that's the bullet train from Osaka. By the way, I planned that itinerary for months. And the first thing I did after going through customs at the airport was go get our tickets. Like that was one of the reasons we were taking this trip. Anyway, the thing that really just, just touched me so much was that the train was filled with grown women and their mothers and Dustin. (laughs) And just seeing generations of women loving Hello Kitty really moved me. I'm also really prone to crying in any truly incredible kawaii situation. So I've cried in so many Hello Kitty related events and places. I think I told you on Instagram about a month ago about the time I cried when I had my photo taken with someone in a Hello Kitty costume. (laughs) It's like I knew it wasn't Hello Kitty, but it just felt like such a big moment. We were in Japan. Anyway, I digress. (laughs) I'm glad to have you here listening to me twice a week. I mean, I still can't believe that you listen to me talk that much. As the kid who was always told that I talk too much, I've been trying to be more quiet for decades. So thank you for listening. It means so much to me. Okay, well, moving on. In our last episode, I talked about my challenges with balancing my commitment to staying on top of current events and, you know, my sanity, because there's been so much going on, particularly in the past few years that, you know, it's hard to stay positive and productive sometimes. Our friend and previous guest, you know her, you love her, Gabriella Antonis, she called with some thoughts about it. Hi, Amanda and listeners. It's Gabriella Antonis. I was just listening to the most recent episode, episode 44, And I just wanted to say some things before I forget. I love that you started with, obviously, the elephant in the room about the coup on Wednesday and just what you mentioned about 
not being like, you know, the news being such an integral part and, and that tightrope analogy was just the perfect analogy. I don't know if it's because like we're both Leos, but I am the exact same way. And I think in times like this that are really bad that I think if, you know, people like us all, all the listeners who've been paying attention could have seen, you know, this was our worst fear coming from four years ago. That's something like what happened on Wednesday could happen. And that even in the times when things are crazy, I can't totally disconnect from the news. I think that it's okay to have times when maybe you're listening to it more than than you were before, but definitely can't totally stop listening to like NPR. <laughs> um, I just wanted to say that and that, you know, it is our responsibility, especially with the escalation of things in this world, I think to stay educated. I totally agree with like the white privilege example that you said of that one ex that you had. And then I just wanted to finish by saying about the weaker Muslim issue. I do think that that would definitely be a great episode. And that just to give it some context, I think that the way China treats its citizens in general is a good foundation to think about how much worse China is making it for the Uyghurs as far as the surveillance goes. That's how it is for every citizen in China. I mean, just the other day on NPR, there was a journalist saying that, I mean, they know, they know as soon as, even if you say you're going to a poetry reading, they'll arrest you because that's free speech. They know from your text, from posts, the second you step outside, like, they will arrest you. So imagine how much harder they're targeting the Uyghurs. And that it is Orwellian is the only word to describe it. I mean, it's, it's exactly like The Handmaid's Tale. It's exactly like 1984. And the surveillance is crazy. And I think that this is why, you know, this is not democratic socialism. That's not what China is. It is, it is, it is a bad socialism. And I think that how they treat their citizens is what um, the misinformed Trump supporters use that kind of like see what they're doing as the example to scare everyone about actually good democratic socialism. And that is it. Thanks again for everything you do. Love you. Bye. Thank you so much for calling Gabriella. I do get really upset when China is used as an example for like fear mongering about socialism. I guess that's a different podcast, but I would love to go on that podcast too and talk about it. <laughs> Gabriella is totally right about the Chinese society being under like, wow, so much surveillance. It's literally Orwellian and the work culture, while I read an article this week, practically right after I got this message from Gabriella. I found it on Vice. It's called Overworking and Humiliation Are Rampant in China's Toxic Workplaces. And I'll share the article in the show notes, but it like really got to me. The article talks about 996, those three numbers, which Vice says is, quote, a term that has come to encapsulate the demanding environment in Chinese offices. It is a reference to work hours that last from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week, without overtime pay, which, I mean, to be honest, reminds me of a few places I've worked during my career. I can't name them here, but trust me, I'm holding a grudge. 
Chinese workplaces are so particularly bad because there's little to no regulation around workers' rights. And culturally, the expectation is that everyone should work as much as possible. I also like this other term that I learned from this article. The term is involution. Uh, Here's a quote from the article that really explains it. 996 culture is also closely related to what Chinese online communities call involution. Originally conceived by anthropologist Clifford Geertz, involution in a sociological sense refers to a situation where technological advancement in a society is no longer reflected in improved living standards among its people. In recent years, the term has been adapted to describe the cutthroat competition in the education system and workforce. And basically what they're saying here is like, technology is supposed to make us have to work less. Like think about robots doing jobs, computers speeding up calculations, like like a computer can do calculations that would take us months to do in just a few minutes, you know? There's a lot more automation that's supposed to save us time and energy. But the reality is, and I would say we're also getting close to this in the United States, maybe the pandemic has changed it a bit, but we've reached a tipping point where we're working even more than we were in the past, despite having all this technology that should have to make us work less. Now, once again, can you hear Brenda is romping around in the background and I cannot get her out of this room, so I apologize. Once again... I do think that here in the United States, the pandemic may have changed the way we work. I don't know. That might be wishful thinking. But I think now that everyone has been working home, well, everyone who can work from home, who has a job, has been working from home for getting close to a year now, I think employers are starting to see that, one, we don't need to come into an office and kind of be held hostage there all day, every day. And two, employees are seeing that Maybe they don't need to put in 9, 10, 11 hours a day to get their work done. That perhaps being in the office was making them less efficient. So we'll see what happens there. Anyway, another aspect of these Chinese work environments, which I found fascinating, is the use of humiliation. Like public humiliation as a disciplinary tool for workers who are not meeting supervisors' expectations. For example... And this is also from the article, quote, male employees who failed to meet performance standards reportedly had to dance around the office in black pantyhose. One employee who refused to participate was fired. Other punishments include the forced consumption of revolting things such as raw bitter gourd, toilet water, and even live worms. The other thing I was reading in this article is that often these employees are forced to share photos and videos of them doing these humiliating things on their personal social media accounts. I mean, this is like, this is bad. Which brings me to Gabriella's point. If it's this bad for the average Chinese worker, just the average Chinese worker, how bad is it for the Uyghurs who are imprisoned and forced to work? I'm working on an episode about the Uyghurs and other forced labor within the fashion industry. It's very widespread. I think I finally found an expert to talk about it with, so stay tuned. That will be coming soon, realistically probably in about a month. And I swear I'm going to mention the Uyghurs in every single episode because 
I don't want us to forget about them. And I want more people to know about it. So tell your friends. This is something that we cannot continue to sweep under the rug. One more thing from Gabriella's call, just totally in a different direction. It really resonated with me when she said, we never guessed four years ago that everything that has happened since then, well, was going to happen because I don't think any of us could have pictured all of that. And it made me think of the day after the election in 2016, which was unfortunately also just a few weeks after I got married to Justin. You know what? I'm really looking forward to being married to Justin during a different presidential administration. (laughs) I feel like it's going to be really good. (laughs) The honeymoon period will begin. Anyway, the mood in my office that day was, it was so dark. We were all so sad. We were occasionally crying and all day long, different fans of the brand, different like really committed customers would stop by just to talk to us about how the election had made them feel, how they were trying to stay hopeful, how important it was for them to have us there as part of their community. And you know, that day I still think about four years later regularly. It it really ended up being very meaningful for me because while I left that job thinking it was a toxic environment that I regretted working there, I always thought about that specific day and how important community was. How building a strong, supportive, passionate community meant that we could make changes. We could support one another. We could keep one another going in the midst of all of this. And it's that vision, that experience, that day, and what I learned from it, that belief in the strength and power of community, that's what really motivates me with Close Horse. It's why I get so excited when I see friendships forming on the Instagram or in our Facebook group, or when I see one listener wearing something that they bought from another listener. It's just so incredible to me. And someday, hopefully not that long from now, Our community won't just be a series of Instagram posts and Facebook threads. We'll actually get to meet one another in real life and hug one another like the long lost friends we've become. I think that's what keeps me going after nearly a year of isolation, a year of hard work and major anxiety and sleepless nights. It's knowing that we're building a framework for a better future. That makes me so happy and so hopeful. If you, yes, you, have a story you would like to share, a question, a comment, perhaps you need to pause the show right now, mid-episode, to share a thought, please call the Close Horse Hotline. The number is 717-925-7417. Okay, one last thing before I jump into my conversation with Anna. I just want to talk about returns a little bit more. We talked about it with Jess in the last two episodes, but despite all the conversation about returns, I have more to say. (laughs) Returns have increased by 95% over the past few years, so that's effectively doubling the amounts of returns, with about $550 billion worth of unwanted items being returned to retailers in 2020. In fact, so that was the estimate that they were having going into the back half of the year. I was reading this week that the returns for the holiday season 
may push that number far beyond that $550 billion because there's some speculation based on data from the last quarter of the year that returns may have increased by 75% in that quarter alone. And so then we would look at basically returns tripling when combined with the other increases. As I'm sure you've noticed, more and more retailers have shifted to free returns over the last few years, right? Because for one, it's now become the industry standard. That means customers expect it. And it encourages customers to, I mean, let's be really honest here, to overspend with the intent of returning some of the purchase. We've all done it. I'm here to tell you, my name's Amanda McCarty, and I'm a serial returner, and I have been very guilty of this behavior in the past. Retailers are basically banking on the hope that you'll end up keeping it all, even though you didn't plan to, or maybe you'll just be too lazy to do the work to send anything back to them. As we talked about seriously, like a million years ago, it feels like, but it was really just the summer of 2020 when we talked about e-commerce and how it works. Retailers are obsessed with what we call fulfillment costs. Fulfillment costs are the cost of pulling your order, packing it up, and shipping it to you. These fulfillment costs, well, they're costly. (laughs) So one way retailers sort of, at least on paper, kind of offset those fulfillment costs is to encourage you to spend more money in your order. So they do things like create a free shipping threshold. We all know this one. Like all orders over $100 ship for free. Or they do a kind of promo called buy more, save more. Like take 10% off orders over 50, but take 20% off orders over 150 and take 30% off orders over 250. You've seen this before and I'm not gonna lie. I'm practically a pioneer of that promo, and I have rolled it out at various jobs. Because you know what? From the buyer perspective, I've seen a lot of success with it. I mean, just in a purely OMG, I can't believe how high sales are today kind of way, right? Not sitting there thinking about the repercussions of it, but seeing like, oh my gosh, like we are going to beat our sales plan because of this buy more, save more promo. But the dark side of that, that you're not thinking about when you're a buyer, that you're definitely not thinking about when you're a customer, is that people buy a lot more stuff than they need, and then they return a lot of it. I mean, hopefully, right? For the customer's sake, they're not buying all this stuff and then being stuck with it. Once again, retailers are gambling that you won't return it, that you'll just buy more, save more, and then you'll be like, eh, It's too much work to return this. I'll just let it sit in the closet, collect dust, and then someday donate it to the Goodwill or sell it on Poshmark. Basically, it's almost like you're taking on the burden of that product on behalf of the retailer, right? So as I said, this gamble that you're not going to return things isn't working out very well for them because returns are so easy and cheap now, right? Retailers lose about one third of their revenue, and revenue means like their total sales each year on returns. Once again, one third of their revenue every year. And as Jess and I discussed, retailers are not investing the time and money in improving these, what we call reverse logistics, specifically when we talk about returns. Because Returns are expensive. They've got to pay 
to ship your return back to them. They have to pay someone to unpack it. They have to pay someone to inspect the garment to make sure it's in good shape or it doesn't have to be a garment. It could be anything else that you return. They have to make sure, is is it resellable? Okay, if it is, then let's repackage it in new unripped, untouched packaging, relabel it, put it back in inventory in the system, then pass it off to someone else to put away in this enormous warehouse, right? It's a lot of people touching it. It's a lot of hours spent making it happen. This is expensive. And while I have read about companies trying to sell solutions to make these reverse logistics a lot faster, retailers are sort of opting to focus on the logistics of getting stuff to you. They want to make sure that orders can get to you as fast and seamlessly as possible. And so they've spent a lot of money and time there, let me tell you. They're not caring about what comes back. So instead, they just opt to damage out the returns, to sell them off to jobbers, or even, and this is something that is really picking up momentum. I read multiple articles about it this week alone. They're just telling customers to keep the unwanted product for themselves while issuing a a refund. So this pushes the burden of that unwanted thing onto the customer. And this is getting more and more popular with like all kinds of retailers. Like, yes, Target, yes, Walmart, yes, Amazon, but also Chewy, you know, and many other retailers out there. I had Ulta send me a completely wrong order and they were just like, oh, just keep it. And it was all kinds of really weird stuff that I had to get rid of on on our neighborhood buy nothing group. That was some work, you know what I mean? But you're asking yourself, doesn't the retailer lose money by just giving away stuff? And I would say, yes, yes, they are. But I think that illustrates for you the difference between the egregious cost of these reverse logistics, paying someone to put it away, versus the extremely low cost of what they sold you. It kind of makes you think a lot more about the value of the things they're selling us, right? Right now, at least 10% of all returns are incinerated or landfilled. But as you know, as we talked about in the last episode, This number is probably significantly higher because retailers aren't required to publicly share this info and it's definitely veiled in a lot of secrecy because this is not a good story for customers to hear. I can't say this enough. I said it on Instagram this week. I'm going to say it again. Free returns are not free, period. Customers and workers pay for free returns. When a company is losing one-third of their revenue on returns, you can be extremely certain (laughs) that they are making up for that by making a higher profit margin on each thing that they sell. So what does that mean? You know, especially in this day and age when retailers realize they cannot increase the retail prices that we, the customers, see and pay, that means they have to decrease the cost to make it. And so this goes back to the classic story that we've been revisiting time and time again here at Close Horse, all the way back even in episode one. This means lower quality fabrics, cheaper trims, less details, less fitting, so it kind of doesn't fit that well, right? And most importantly, lower wages for all the workers involved in making, shipping, and selling those products. This means that garment workers are being paid even less. 
this means that retail workers don't get full-time hours because they don't want to pay to cover the cost of benefits, which they would have to if they were full-time. This means the same thing for warehouse workers being kept just under that threshold of full-time because it's too expensive to pay benefits when you're doing all these free returns. (laughs) It's really dark to think about, but that is ultimately what's happening at the end of the day on the balance sheet for all of these companies. I'm always saying to you, it's cheap because someone didn't get paid. Well, let's add another one there. Returns are free because someone didn't get paid. Now, in a situation where you're paying a return fee, or sometimes called a restocking fee by the brand, your return should be returned to inventory for someone else to buy. That $8, 10 $12 that you're paying in this restocking fee should be enough to cover all of the labor associated with processing returns. However, here today in 2021, I trust no one. So I don't think it hurts for you to ask the retailer themselves, what's happening with your return. I mean, they'll tell you, right? So what can you do to minimize the amount of stuff you're returning that you bought online? Well, number one, of course, is mitigating your returns. So that means don't overshop, don't impulsively shop, don't fall for the buy more, save more promo or the free shipping threshold. And do your best, and I know this is really challenging, to utilize the size charts to the best of your ability. And as I've said, I'm a recovering returnaholic, so I've also been working really hard to make these changes in my life. And you know what? It is a change in habit for me to not automatically look at what the free shipping threshold is and keep adding stuff to my cart to get there. That's a huge change in just the way I approach shopping, right? I also just want to remind you, as I'm reminding you all the time now, Tweet, email, leave Instagram comments, all of those things, asking retailers what they're doing to reduce their return waste and ask them, what happens to my returns? I think right now, they don't think most of us care about that. So we need to let them know that we do care. Okay, so we've been talking about online returns, but what about store returns? I mean, That seems like it would be a lot easier way to return stuff to inventory, right? They can just go put it back on the store shelf and then other customers could buy it. Well, first off, anything that seems kind of gross to buy in a less than 100% spanking new condition is probably going to be thrown out. So that includes underwear, socks, tights, that kind of thing, but also beauty and grooming products. So think like shampoos, cosmetics, deodorant, those things are tossed no matter what. So even if they were never opened or touched, they still get tossed. I read an article from a couple of years ago about Ulta employees having to squeeze out bottles of shampoo and smash eyeshadow palettes all because they had been returned. Even if they had never been used or even opened, even if the plastic seal had never been removed. Well, I guess that's a great segue into my conversation with Anna, so let's get going. Today I'm being joined by Anna, who I, from the first time I discovered Anna's work on Instagram, I was obsessed with meeting her and getting her on the podcast, but I didn't want to be an internet creep and just message her, so 
I just waited. And then it turned out that Jess of Fab Scrap was friends with her and she made the introduction. So I feel really lucky today. Um, Anna, do you want to introduce yourself and, you know, why sure. I wanted to meet you so badly? <laughs> sure. Also, always feel free to be a quote unquote internet creep because you're not actually <laughs> being an internet creep and it's always flattering. Um, I'm Anna and on social media, I go by the trash walker and basically I go through corporate and residential waste and I'm trying to make people think about waste more. A lot of people have tried to create systemic change and I'm trying to add on to that also so that we don't continue overproducing and filling landfills and incinerators with usable items while at the same time we have intense material poverty throughout the world. So that's what I work on. And um, I love talking about this topic. This episode is going to be preceded by a series of interviews with Jess from Fab Scrap. Oh, nice. We talked a lot about how like we're so distanced from what we throw out Mm -hmm. that we Mm -hmm. don't see the big picture of it ever. And I was telling her during the summer when we were still living in Philadelphia, there were a lot of issues with sanitation. You know, they were just really short-staffed because of the pandemic. And so sometimes our trash and recycling wouldn't be picked up for weeks at a time. And that was when you really started to see how much we were all consuming and not even fully consuming. And I told her, you know, our recycling was so extreme because we were just blazing through cans of off-brand LaCroix. And I was like, this is gross. Like, we we have to change. And so we got a soda stream, you know? Like, awesome. it was great to be confronted with our waste. And so I feel like that's why people are – I mean, when they see your videos, it, it kind of hits – it's a gut punch where you're like, whoa, mm-hmm. that really happens. So how did you get started looking at everyone's trash? Well, two things just about the waste. One is that I think, I mean, it needs to be picked up very frequently because it's a public health issue. So it's not healthy, obviously, when it piles up on the street and having the the consistent pickup of sanitation has led to decreased spread of diseases and especially Mm -hmm. when it was mismanaged before. But the flip side of that is exactly what you're saying, where you don't realize actually how much you're consuming and how much waste, even if it's being recycled, even if it's a metal can, how much you're contributing. And so I think it's both necessary, but then at the same time, the frequent pickup makes it be like out of sight, out of mind. Um, And I think that a lot of people are disconnected from even knowing where it goes. So most of Manhattan, it's sent to a Covanta incinerator in Newark, New Jersey, where it's located in a low income, predominantly people of color neighborhood. Newark is, I mean, you have Newark airport, you have wastewater treatment facilities, incinerators, a lot of heavy machinery there and industry there. And at the same time, you have people working and living there and schools and children. And um, I think they're known, there's like the Ironbound community and they've done really great um, advocacy and pushed for New Jersey to pass. I think it's the first in the nation, this environmental justice uh, law that was passed last year. So we'll see how that goes into effect. But um, it's the idea that it's not, that it's picked up and then you don't know what happens to it. I think people need to know actually what happens to it and be like, it's it's going to our neighbors and it's negatively impacting their health. I think people need to be aware of that full, from the beginning to end, the ways in which our consumption impacts other people. 
Right, right. And I mean, one thing I have noticed, because I do love looking at people's trash, not like through it, but at it, is that, yes, of course, there's food waste and, you know, the waste from like our regular use of things like paper towels and whatnot. But there's also just lots of like clothes and shoes and Mm -hmm. toys and things that it just seems so wasteful. Well, and it's just not the right choice to just put it outside on the curb, but that's happening every day. Yeah. Well, 6% of New York City's waste stream, residential waste stream, consists of textiles. So textiles also includes like sheets or curtains, um, which is Mm -hmm. a lot. That is, it's actually a Mm -hmm. huge amount. Um, And when I go through the trash, I do find a lot of fast fashion brands. um, And I think that's one of the issues of pricing them so cheaply is that then people value them like they value a cup of coffee from Starbucks, where it all seems disposable, like a Forever 21 tank top seems disposable. But it if it's still in great condition, you know, it definitely could be used again. If it's not in great condition, maybe it could be recycled for textile, just obviously as an expert on that. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I think that like our whole, because things are very cheap, we, we equate cheapness with disposability and, um, that's not actually true. 100%. I feel like one of the points I make constantly is that nothing is actually disposable, you know, mm-hmm. like, and, and especially when we talk about clothing, uh, whether it's made of a natural fiber, whether it costs a lot of money or was very inexpensive. And unfortunately, We've been in this downward race to the bottom since mm-hmm. the early aughts for like how cheap can clothes be? Like let's get yeah. there. Everything else that we buy is significantly more expensive than it was 20 years ago except for clothes. Look at college, college yeah. tuition. Oh my God. I know. I know. That's a prime <laughs> example, right? Or like yeah, my husband and I have been watching 80s episodes of The Price is Right. And oh my God. Very soothing. Like, I can't explain it. I but, love the price that's right. Oh, me too. And like the rainbow colors and the games and the people watching. And it's all really great. And we've been watching episodes that are primarily from 1982. And like stuff will come out like a car will be $6,000, right? Like that kind of stuff. Wow. But like the pricing for clothing type stuff, which which they rarely show in there, but they sometimes do. The clothes that we can buy now are cheaper than the clothes from that era. Mm-hmm. And I'm, that mm-hmm. tells you something when – I don't 100% know the price of a new car, but I would guess it would be close to $30,000 today. I mean, I it's like I've never bought a new car, so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I have a vague idea of it. And I think that alone shows you how this industry has kind of pushed clothing into this like psychologically disposable area that yeah. is incredibly problematic. I mean, that's primarily what my podcast is about, but you know. Yeah. So yeah. how did you – get into trash? Like, has this been a lifelong passion when you, were you little, like walking around getting into the trash or uh, like what, what started this? I've always had an aversion to waste. Um, and I think that's very common for people though, mm-hmm. but, um, I loved thrifting and since middle school, since I was like 12 years old and, um, I grew up in New York City, and there was also one instance in high school where my friend and I were walking on the Upper East Side. We actually were going to consignment stores, so I was, you know, all all about vintage and secondhand. And um, on the sidewalk was this trunk full of clothing, and it was incredible vintage clothing. 
um, that I still wear all the time. And we brought it back and divided it up. And that was always like just the highlight of finding this amazing, the it's such good vintage clothing and finding it on the street for free. And it was thrilling. And then after college, I did a different, a number of things for my career. And um, I was working at an investment bank and feeling like I needed a change and feeling burned out. Just the industry is very difficult. When you're working as a corporate blank, if you're working for a corporate, like as a corporate lawyer, a corporate investment banker, just in that type of environment, um, you know, you're on call. And it's not like you're on call to save a person's life. You're on call to get a document out. You're, You're on call for like calls and emails and that sort of thing. And, um, it, it took a personal toll on me where I was, and it, again, it's not about the specific place. It's about the, in, the wider industry where, um, you, I couldn't really make plans on a weeknight because who knows what would come up. And so I started out making plans mm-hmm. and then eventually I learned I needed just to not make plans ever because it would lead to like canceling them. And like, if I bought concert, I, I know that. if I bought concert tickets, it's like, well, too bad if something comes up. Um, so I, it was just like, um, it's a tough industry. And so I wanted something different. And I spent a weekend at, it's called Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center. Um, and I learned about this program called Adama, which means uh, earth or ground in Hebrew. That's where the word Adam actually comes from. So like the first man is supposed to come from the ground. Um, And yeah, which we also like we're missing that connection um, nowadays. But so I went to Adama and it's like a three month intensive um, farming and composting and intentional community and Judaic learning. Um, but, But also... I went to Jewish day school and this was a different type of Judaism where it was more connected to the agricultural aspects of Judaism and the nature-based aspects of Judaism, like emphasizing that Adam from Adama connection. Um, mm-hmm. And then when mm-hmm. I returned to the city, the, the trash that we had piled up stood out to me. And it, I think it's definitely the fact that I hated waste, that I had this experience with thrifting and with finding stuff before in the curb, on the curb, in the trash and walking around. It was just shocking thinking like, what is all of this that we're throwing out, especially when on the farm we produced very little waste. Uh, we composted and we fed also all of the chicken scraps to um, heritage chickens. So like modern chickens can't really digest um, regular food and heritage chickens can. Mm-hmm. So we would feed them, eat their eggs, compost their eggshells, and then um, the finished compost spread on the farm and then use that to grow more food. So we wouldn't rely at all on synthetic fertilizer, which is very um resource intensive to produce and problematic because it leads to like agricultural runoff um, because it's an unstable Mm -hmm. molecule. But anyways, so yeah, it was, it was me returning to the city, walking around with like these new eyes, um, thinking about what are we throwing out and investigating a little bit more and noticing all of the usable things that um, 
were tossing. And so I used to just like walk around the neighborhood and collect things. And then eventually I realized, well, I need a cart for this. So um, I began pushing a cart. <laughs> and then when my family asked me like, where are you going? I'd be like, I'm going on a trash walk because like, that's what, I don't know. I didn't know <laughs> what else to describe it. It's like, I'm going to look through the trash and like walk around in my neighborhood. And then um, the final thing was that I was trying to transition my career and I had come back from the farm. I had a really confusing resume. I was working part-time as a Hebrew educator after school and having trouble getting getting somewhere. I was volunteering. I was trying to do different things. And so I began posting more of what I was doing on social media as a way to give me credibility because it was very hard. My options at that point were like, do I want to go to grad school? And no, I didn't want to go to grad school. I thought I don't love school and... Um, I, 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 don't, I, I, yeah, no, me neither. <laughs> I love learning, but I don't love school, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't love the reading, read a hundred pages this week and write a three page summary. Like that's not, I, that's to me, like, I, I, I have huge issues with that. Um, and then <laughs> it's also expensive and I wanted to find a way to do this career, but not have to get that credibility through the typical way of going to school. Right, um, right. and, and so posting on social media was a way in which to do that. Um, uh, yeah. And then I soon after that was hired by Think Zero, which is a waste reduction and diversion consulting firm. And mm-hmm. I've been doing trash walker stuff for three years now, documenting it on social media and and then working at Think Zero. So this has kind of been my obsession. That's an incredible story. And that like, you know what stuck out to me most actually mm. is that you were like wanted a career in waste yeah. and you took this different path to it, which I mean, I have – I could do a whole episode on just about all the shortcomings of higher education, mm-hmm. in my opinion, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And I think you just proved everything I think about it right there. So thank no, you. <laughs> and and also the thing is like, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something related to composting um, because that's what mm-hmm. I really fell in love with when I was at Adama, this, this cycle of it really is a cycle of death and rebirth and it's so natural and ancient and it makes a lot of Mm -hmm. sense to return nutrients to the earth. And so that's what I wanted to do. Um, And that's what I still, you know, work on. You know, one of the things you post, or I don't know, like one of the genres of posts that you share are sort of like these piles of stuff that perfectly good stuff that were either destroyed and thrown out or just thrown mm-hmm. out by yeah. different retail businesses. Yeah. I think that this shocks people that they don't know that this is happening uh, because, you know, it's kind of a top secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you start coming across those piles of stuff? Yeah. Well, in New York City, most places don't have a private compactor or a dumpster. So most stores just place it on the curb. So it's accessible. So Mm-hmm. It just made it easy, really. And walking by, I started out with residential waste, but then when I was doing my trash walks, I would also come across corporate waste. And then I started to notice patterns in corporate waste. And then um, when I was thinking, I mean, I think we need to change on many different levels. And one of them is on the corporate systemic level, um, not just mm-hmm. the individual mm-hmm. re- residential level. And 
it, it was it was shocking. Um, one of the first things that I found several years ago was um, wrapping paper from Hanukkah that had been slashed through bags of it outside of a CVS. And I was just like, this is messed up that, first of all, as a Jewish person, someone is producing all this in the name of like my religion. And then they're mm-hmm. destroying it with like a box cutter to make sure no one can use it. And it just, Ugh. it's so, it's so messed up. Um, and it just like, whenever I see that type of waste related to Jewish holidays, I'm like, you're, you don't understand. We have a holiday for the trees. We have like, we literally celebrate the trees birthdays every single year in Judaism. And the fact that you're Mm -hmm. taking like wrapping paper made out of paper and trees and then slashing it. And it's like, it's antithetical actually to the religion. Um, So I was noticing it again and again and again. And um, with that, I emailed the CEO. I started a change.org petition. I spoke with their regional manager at CBS. Um, I tried getting media around it. Um, and I'm still basically, it's been, I think, two years since that happened. And the change.org petition has performed really well. It has over 400,000 signatures. And CVS did say soon after that they were going to change things and donate, but there isn't rhyme or reason about what they donate and what they don't donate. Um, like this past week, I found socks and multiple pairs of socks in their trash. Um, brand new. Oh, they were a little dirty. So, yeah. That's so upsetting. Yeah. And if I'm finding socks unopened, tampons, pads, toothpaste, then something is wrong clearly with their donation programs because those are just basic essential items that a lot of shelters could benefit from. Yeah. That's so crazy. I we we did an episode a long time ago. Like this was pretty early in Close Horse about how businesses like big retailers like CVS or any clothing store you can think of get into all this like excess inventory. And Mm -hmm. one thing we talked about is donation is possible, but it's kind of like they don't want to spend the manpower money to make it happen. That's what it really comes down to, that like they'd have to pay someone to sort it out. They'd have to pay someone to set up the relationship. You know, just all of those things that are actually in the grand scheme of things, not that much money for especially for CVS. Yeah. I just want to say with CVS, Larry Merlo, the CEO, makes over $20 million a year. So as a corporation, I'm not targeting a mom and pop operation. I'm targeting the largest right. pharmacy chain in the US. So they have the money, they have the resources. If they want to be a leader in this, they can and they should. Um they have this mission or this public image they like to uphold of doing good. And I just don't understand how they can say that and then actually not care in these very physical ways. Um, Not to say that they don't do good, they do good in other ways, but this is a clear gap in that goodness, helping community strategy that they're trying to achieve. Agreed, agreed. And like, once again, yes, they might have to hire someone to manage that donation process on a corporate level and maybe their store staff would have to put an extra hour into sorting it all out and packaging it up or dropping it off or whatever. But ultimately, it would be such a drop in the bucket for them. 
I, that's why it's frustrating. That's why it's frustrating. You yeah. Know? And two, two things to address. One is that employees spend time with these items one way or another. So sometimes they are required to, depends on the CVS location and some locations they squeeze out all the toothpaste and they squeeze out all the sunscreen and they slash up different items and they break it in half. And that takes time. You know, that's an employee spending maybe an hour, sometimes depending on the scale of the waste doing that. So they are spending employees time one way or another. Um, And the other thing is that you could do more reverse logistics. So they have deliveries every single week for restocks. You could give, give a box back of returned items, damaged items, excess inventory related to past holidays, whatever it is, and then consolidate it in their warehouse. And then from there, it's easier once you have that scale to donate. So there are solutions. One also a very clear solution to me is allow employees to take this home because right now it's considered theft and they could be fired for taking home any of these items. So even if they want to use tampons, even if they're like, just I'll, I'll take them short. No, that's theft. And they could be fired for that. You know, there's a big disparity in, in the amount that Larry Merlo, the CEO, $20 million a year is being paid. And the average employee CVS who's making minimum wage, which is $7 and like 25 cents, something like that. I forget what it is Mm -hmm. exactly. But, Mm -hmm. you know, as an added perk, um, if someone is working full time and making 20 something thousand dollars a year, why not let them have these items that they could really use, you know, just like let them have it. And then there isn't that reverse logistics that you need to worry about. And it could be a perk. I think that's a really good point. So one thing I wanted to say about CVS is um, the Brookings Institute did a study into how some of the biggest retail chains in the United States were paying hazard pay during Mm. the pandemic. And CVS came in at the bottom. I think the only brand that was worse than them was Walgreens. And it was under 20 cents that they were giving. They, I mean, think about someone working in a drugstore. They are probably dealing with some of the most contagious customers because you have people coming in there to get cough medicine and prescriptions and, you know, other wellness related items. And so I, well, that's just one thing I wanted to say, but Two, on the subject of the damaged or expired items, uh, a grocery store chain in the Pacific Northwest called New Seasons, rather than throwing out that food, unless it was like an egregious amount where they needed to donate it, which they would do, they had a refrigerator in the store that was specifically for the employees. It was like in the back of house that would be filled with these things that were nearing their expiration date or perhaps had just passed it that they could take home for themselves. And- I feel like that builds such a great relationship mm. with your employee. And exactly. most importantly, it builds a relationship of trust because yeah. that's what it really comes down yeah. to. And this is something we talked about on the pod before is like, unfortunately, a lot of these companies view their employees as potential criminals at all times. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. loss prevention is way more important to them than thinking about waste or the ethical use of excess, you know, or the ethical implications of creating excess, like that doesn't matter to them. It's more like, what if that employee steals a box of tampons from us? It's so true. And it's so, I think why it stuck out to me, all of this is because I've never, thankfully, worked in a work environment where they treated me as an employee that way. 
it's not like when I was working at the investment bank, it wasn't like, oh, if we if we get granola bars, you're going to steal them, you know, <laughs> yeah, like they're, and, yeah. and, you know, for CVS or for any other employer, I think it's important to value your employees. And it's so demoralizing. Um, I've consistently what I've heard is like, I hate it. It's the worst part of my job. It's why I quit. It's, you know, like I will never shop there again. And they don't just say that in a vacuum, they tell their friends, they tell their family, you know, it's, it's bad business. And if you want to create a workspace where employees feel okay about going there every day and feel like they're contributing in some way to the world, you know, like CBS employees or people who work in a grocery store, you've seen throughout the pandemic, they're essential workers, they're providing a service that we yeah. all need. Mm -hmm. And they should be valued for that. And that's one of the ways it's not forcing them to destroy food and all these necessary items and not even allowing them to take it home. It's saying, okay, if we're not we don't want this, we can't sell it for this reason or another, if you want to take it home. Like that's what we should be doing. And it's going to lead to, you know, employee boost in happiness and productivity. If, if, since those seem to be the only things corporations like seem to care about, like, <laughs> yeah. I think you could spin the argument that way also. I, I think it's good for business all around. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, I love talking about this kind of stuff. All of these things, like the waste, so many other issues, they all come back to really reevaluating what is what is the path to profitability that also involves caring for mm. people? And right now, people are sort of, you know, they're either the customers or their employees, but they're not like their well-being isn't important. It's all about like the final numbers. And I think it really yeah. it really says like, let's revisit what capitalism is, what it is to run a profitable company. What if we put responsibility in there? And that was like one of the metrics in which like your stock price was was mm -hmm. aged, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. The thought of be making minimum wage and having to go squeeze out tubes of toothpaste and throw out tampons mm -hmm. when I can barely afford either is, it's appalling to me. Like, I can't even imagine being in that situation. The sort of like mental gymnastics you're going through while you do that. You can't do anything though because you're gonna get lose your job That's if you speak right. about it. If you if you try to take it home, you're gonna lose your job. So it's a very tough position to be in, um, and there's really nothing you can do other than like grin and bear it because you need a job. Totally. I mean, I worked most of the century in retail and buying on both like a store level and a corporate level, and I've seen how the way we deal with like excess inventory, if you will, the things that don't sell and are maybe like out of season or expired. It has changed a lot in since mm. 2005, let's say. For one, we didn't have that much extra stuff back then. Like I remember the store that I was working in at that time, we might every couple months have generated an entire box of stuff that needed to be donated. It just mm. wasn't that much stuff. And the guy who worked in our receiving part of the store would just call this charity that would come and pick it up when they had it. And it was very like the store team managed it. It was no big deal. It was very streamlined. We weren't wasting anything. Everything got donated, that kind of stuff. And then gradually mm -hmm. over time, it changed to, first off, suddenly we are damaging out just like 200 candles at a time, a mountain of pants, things that just – We'd received too many in the first place and no one wanted to buy or maybe there was a slight quality issue or they didn't like the way it smelled or 
whatever. And we were no longer allowed to donate it. Now, at that point, we were boxing it all up unless it was too fragile and shipping it back to the warehouse for like the, for the whole company, like the distribution center where they mm-hmm, would mm-hmm. ostensibly donate or sell it off to someone else. Like I remember a lot of our stuff would go to like Marshall's or Gabriel Brothers or that kind of place, right? But then we crossed another line where now it was like, okay, we can't donate this. We're not, we're not going to pay to send it back and have it sh- sold off to someone else. It's just not as cost effective. We're going to pay employees to smash things. Like literally, we're going to send safety goggles yeah. and hammers to every store so that they can safely smash glassware. And I remember a coworker of mine getting fired for taking two candles out of the dumpster and taking them home. It's just like, yeah. what? They had no value to you. Yeah. But they don't want you to have it. And when- I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I can't have it, no one can have it. Um, but- totally. The fact that, like, they sent you safety goggles and hammers to destroy candles is, like, that's an insane image. That thinking, like, <laughs> like I want a movie clip of that, you know? I want that to be somewhere because it's so, like, that's the reality for so many. Anyone who works at Bath & Body Works, I don't think they have safety go- goggles, though. They staple it into a paper bag, and then they throw the paper bag repeatedly onto the floor until the they hear the glass <gasps> break. Yeah, so I don't think they have that. When I posted this video on TikTok called hashtag retail made me about like things retail made me destroy for people to share. Um, multiple people spoke about workplace injuries related to oh. destruction of usable items totally. because you're dealing with you're dealing with glass, you're dealing with hammers, you're dealing with like these fragments that can come shooting back up. And that's not okay. That like this one person was like, yeah, I got cut and then I had to go get stitches um and then I didn't have health insurance and like it just that's not it's not okay that that's our system oh my gosh 100% I mean we even at that same store where people were smashing candles and glassware we would have to destroy furniture which is is really difficult actually like to go outside on (sighs) in the back by the dumpster with a sledgehammer and smash up a couch is I mean, there, I have so many problems with that, but it was also like people were constantly getting cuts and scratches. You know, they'd come downstairs and have to get bandaged. And it's just all, it's so obnoxious. Like when I saw your Awful. videos, I was like, finally, someone is talking about this because yeah. when we work in the industry, it's like a dirty secret. And it's hidden. And that's the thing. You can't speak up about it because you might lose your job. You you probably will. And you know, like with, with NDAs, with managers finding out, it's intentionally a secret and it's so widespread. It's a weird secret that's been kept intact. And like, I think it's just a matter, I think it was just a matter of time for it to get out in the open. I don't think it's like fully out in the open. I think it needs to get even more out in the open because companies are not changing and we need them to change. And if they're not willing to do it, so many employees talk about, you know, speaking with their managers and managers are like, yeah, I hate this also. I can't help it. And so many employees have spoken about donating and wanting to donate and nothing has changed. And so if corporations won't listen to their own employees, to their own managers, then I think you need public pressure um, to get gain awareness for this, to legislate about this, or for corporations to be uh, be shamed into doing the right thing, which is like, it's stupid that they don't do the right thing 
automatically because they're like, oh, actually, we don't need this. Someone could probably use a couch. We can donate it to a shelter or whatever. You know, it's it's ridiculous. There was a video um, someone submitted about her and her kid living very poorly, not having a lot, sleeping without mm-hmm. her apartment without furniture, and then coming across a dumpster where there was a couch next to it and her feeling like, finally, here's the couch. I've been waiting for years for one of these. And it was all slashed up. Uh. And that's that's the flip side of the furniture of, yes, like it, it's damaging to the environment is damaging to employees who are forced to take a sledgehammer to it. And it's damaging to the people who could benefit from it. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, if, if like, I mean, in New York, this is less uh, common because mostly you're dealing with trash bags out in the street, but you know, in other cities, in more suburban locations or malls, these stores will have a dumpster behind the store and these are generally locked. And straight up, my boss told me it's locked. So no one takes anything out of it. It wasn't locked to keep animals out or to keep people from getting sick by being exposed to trash. It was there because they didn't want anybody to take any of these products out of it. So I just found out actually with Hallmark, um, Hallmark, American Greening Papyrus, all those unsold wrapping paper and greening cards and bags, they slash Uh up. But with Hallmark, if they have a compactor where it's, or um, a dumpster that has a lock, they don't, they're not required to slash them first because they view it as secure. So no one can use it. But if they're going to be like accessible to the public, then they, the employees spend time slashing every single one individually, like ripping it or slashing it with a box cutter. And that's just so great. We're talking about cards and wrapping paper. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so ridiculous. And I mean, it just, people like resources and energy and people's work went into making all of that and now it's being destroyed so that no one can ever have it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these like higher end brands like Coach or Michael Kors and honestly even like Nike, places like that, say that they destroy this unsold product because it's brand damaging, that's the term, to get that product into the hands of you know, people who aren't their like desirable customer basically. And I think about, I know that's, that's a whole other thing, but it's so, it's so elitist. It's so elitist. What should be brand damaging is that you're having your employees slash the stuff and throw it in the dumpster. That should be brand damaging. Like I would love to read that about all of these brands. Every time I see one of your posts and you're like, look at all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah. More people need to know because like I said, it's like a gritty secret. That should be brand damaging. You know, exploiting your workers should be brand damaging, you know? It's so good. That's so good. Oh, my God. Do you mind if I make a TikTok about the brand damaging? Because that's so... No, you should. You should. I love love that. I feel like that's the term that they always use. It's brand damaging to, like, let people have this bag that we couldn't sell or whatever. And, like, the thought of slashed leather bags just going to the landfill, I mean... I have so many problems with that. I mean, I have problems with all of this, but for some reason that one like really gets me because that's like an animal's skin. You know what I mean? It's just, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh, it's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. But they could also donate it for charities. Like they could auction it off, you know, like, like, you know, and then raise money for a charity if 
they're afraid if, or if they think it's brand damaging for people who are poor to be using their products, which is really what they're they're saying. Yeah, that's what they're really saying, right? Yeah. They don't want poor people to carry a coach bag, I guess. It's totally right. Yeah. You know, I know yeah. there's some sort of partnership going on between Target and Goodwill because every time I, do, I go to a Goodwill, there's mm-hmm. a lot of brand new Target stuff there. And I am like, that's pretty cool, actually, you know, because some of the yeah. are not accessible to people. Like Target's expensive, you know? So Target, from what I've heard, is that they sell it to Goodwill. Um, oh, so, yeah. which is an interesting business model, not necessarily, maybe they donate some of it, but a lot of it is sold. Target actually, from what I've heard, they still have not, to, they still destroy a lot of usable things, but they overall do a better job than like some of the other big retailers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see them do it with everything, but I yeah. do like that Target's not sitting around saying it would be really brand damaging for our stuff to be at the Goodwill, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit less, elite, yeah. I guess. But that is really what we're talking about when we talk about things being brand damaging, not being in the hands of the aspirational customer. That also means poor people, you know, it's, it's just so, it's, it's just gross. The whole thing is gross and it should all be brand damaging. Yeah. It's, it's just all, it's, I mean, it's hatred of poor people, which is ridiculous. It's the, the total shaming of, I, I, it's just, it's gross. The, the fact that poor people are not viewed in some ways as people, uh, yeah. like as, as worthy of carrying a coach bag. I like, know. It, it's disgusting. It's so disgusting. It's disgusting. And that almost brings us back full circle to talking about how retailers don't trust their employees. So they're like, no, rather than you take home this thing that we can't sell anyway that is useful, please destroy it and put it in the dumpster. Because yeah. if we give you one thing, you might be tempted to steal something. I don't understand what the line is there. It's like some really fa- faulty yeah. logic that is like, if you're poor, you'll, you're, you're a thief. You'll, in, exactly. You'll intentionally damage something. That's what they're concerned about. Ugh. But like, but, and I think that the thing is, is any system is sub- can be subject to abuse. Right. So any system, that doesn't mean you don't implement the system. That means that you put checks to that system. So, you know, there are video cameras everywhere and they already threaten people. Someone shared a story about her leaving pizzas. They were going to be thrown out and instead putting them in like the Target employee um, shared fridge where mm-hmm. any Target employee could have it. And, um, and then... Being like, you know, the the cameras, something like the cameras are watching, that the the shrink control, that the loss uh, prevention unit are watching and they're concerned or something like that. Um, and so she had to stop because she didn't want to lose her job. But it's not as if that doesn't happen. So it's not really an excuse. They are watching employees. They do have algorithms where they can check the data and see if like consistently if it's this employee or this product or whatever, like there, if, if a person is abusing the system and intentionally damaging things so that they could take it home, they can find out. And that's not a reason, that's not reason enough for them to not implement a system that would be beneficial. Totally. I totally agree. It's just like what I think is someone who is a major player in the retail industry needs to make that a regular practice and more people will follow. Someone needs to yeah. be like the front runner in like 
hey, waste is gross and my employees are human beings. Look what we're going to do. I, that's unfortunately how it works. Like someone needs to put their neck out there and make the change. Or this is the better situation because it will happen a lot faster. We need to pass laws that make mm-hmm. all of this waste and just general shittiness unacceptable. The law process, I think, is going to – I mean, who knows? But it seems like it's. it takes – the that whole process does seem to take time. Yeah. yeah. So I think in the meantime, like, I, what I am asking, and I – I'm very upfront that it's risky and that, you know, it's not for, not everyone should do this by any means, but like if people are able to share their story, if people are able to videotape the things that they're forced to discard or to slash, you know, and then discard, um, I, I would be happy to share that anonymously or credit it if a person wants credit. But I think that, it's so visual and people don't understand. It's hard to get a sense of the scale of the waste. If you think about every single Dunkin' Donuts store in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, every single store has at least two trash bags at the end of the night of the fresh-made donuts that they're to- they toss. And that weighs around 50 pounds. I actually brought the bags home once and like weighed them myself. And wow. it was 50 that is a and lot of donuts. Cause it's, it's a lot. It's just everything. And they need to have a certain amount at, available at all times. So like, that's a corporate policy that they should be changing. They should be okay of selling out of things. We just produce too many donuts and it's not a case of donating is going to solve it because donuts go stale pretty quickly. They're not nutritious. They have a lot of sugar. So like, that's just a case where that we need to reduce production Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and Dunkin' Donuts needs to be okay as a chain for like certain varieties to sell out. Or if you're nearing the end of the night, maybe doing a deal where you get two for one or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you think about it, it's massive. But what if every single person working in a Dunkin' Donuts could videotape that? So one night you watch like over and over and over again, the donuts being tossed into the trash. And then you see the scale of the problem. Um, and then you realize like, so- this is wrong. Something is wrong here and something needs to change. I think it's very visceral. Like when you when you see the images, um, when you hear the stories, I think it's hard not to feel that this is wrong. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's great for people to sort of be confronted with a re- like an image of these like 50 pound bags of donuts being thrown out. I mean, I think you don't fully understand it until you see it play out. And I think that's why the video version of it is so genius because it becomes real for everyone. It's not just like yeah. words. Like it's not just you and I saying there are 10,000 Dunkin' Donuts and they each throw out 50 donuts. That doesn't – or 50 pounds of yeah. donuts. That doesn't mean much to people. So if people have videos for you, where should they send them? Um, you could DM me on Instagram at the trash walker. One thing I get asked a lot is like, what Thanks. if I want to do this stuff, what do I do? Um, I always recommend Kev- like puncture proof gloves, Kevlar gloves, typically. Um, protect your hands, hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good idea. Good idea. And there are things that you could use like a grabber. Like you could even do a snake grabber if you're going to a dumpster and you want to like reach in and grab a bag. Um, so you could you could get one of those things. Um, 
so th- 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 that's just like a tip if you wanted to get into like going through trash. <laughs> our country and our world would be better if everyone played an active role in their community. And I think actually like being an active community member in the way that I've been over the last several years has made me happier to feel more connected, especially in New York City through my Buy Nothing group on Facebook. I recommend everyone join a Buy Nothing group. It's a really great way for meeting people, exchanging goods and building local community um, and getting involved mm-hmm. in local politics because that's where change also happens. It's not just federal. Um, and that's where change, like, I don't think people are used to, and I certainly wasn't used to, being involved in local politics. I didn't know what district I was in. I didn't know who my district representative was. I didn't, I don't think I was fully aware until several years ago that each borough of Manhattan had its own borough president. I was just like, the way in which the city functioned was kind of um, not relevant to me. But I think that if everyone, everyone get involved with your community board, with your local council member, ask for donate Mm -hmm. and dump legislation, Um, or if there's other legislation that you want to see passed, because that's really, it's, it makes a big difference. And I think in terms of the bang for the buck for your time and energy, that's where it's better spent more than like, I'm, I'm, I'm all for recycling, of course, continue recycling. But, um, I think that those bigger structural changes are better uses of time and energy than focusing on kind of individual changes. Um, So yeah, getting involved in your community and getting involved in your local, local government, um, local community groups, I, I really recommend for everyone. Thanks again to Anna for taking the time to talk to me. The second half of our episode will be coming your way on Sunday, where we'll be discussing the very unsurprising link between waste and unfair slash unethical treatment of employees. I mean, we're kind of already started talking about that today, right? And you're definitely not surprised. (laughs) These are two things that seem to always come hand in hand. We'll also be talking about NDAs and other agreements that employees are often strong-armed into signing, which prevents them from speaking out about things like corporate waste and other unethical practices. In the meantime, please check out Anna on Instagram, where you'll find her at The Trash Walker. This week, she uncovered some pretty devastating stuff about Petco and PetSmart, namely the mistreatment of the animals that they sell and this really upset me, perfectly fine and alive animals literally being put in the dumpster. She started a change.org petition, and it seems as if Petco is trying to fix the situation already. So stay tuned and keep watching. I think her story is so inspiring for anyone who is passionate about making change that just by putting yourself out there and pursuing something you believe in, you could find yourself making a lot of progress toward improving the world. And that's like the best feeling, right? And please take her advice about getting more involved in local and state politics. More than ever, 2020 showed me that those sections on the ballot are just as, if not more important, 
than the federal races because our state and local governments have been largely shaping how the pandemic and the subsequent unemployment and poverty and all the other repercussions are being addressed. I mean, your experience in the past year can be widely different based on the state and city that you live in. Civics was one of my favorite classes in high school, and there's something really gratifying about finally understanding the importance of my role, all of our roles, in shaping what happens around us. I think that's kind of going to be the theme for 2021, making change around us. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. I always say that. Are you bored with hearing me say that yet? And tell your friends. That's how we get more people involved, right? I also want to remind you that I still have a few anti-brunch pins left. So if you leave a review this month, I'll send you an anti-brunch society pin and membership card. And how you claim that is just by either sending me a screenshot of your review or when I inevitably shared on stories, just message me, all right? Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. I love hearing from all of you. It's always my favorite part of the day. And I don't know if you caught this this week, but we somehow as a group busted and took down a website called Modish Rebels that was knocking off Claire of Copper Union, along with a lot of other rad independent designers. I mean, that's a pretty exciting week on Instagram, am I right? And you know... If anyone messes with Claire, the Clothes Horse crew is coming out to fight them, right? Even if it's just by reaching out to every other designer that's being copied and getting them to report the site to Shopify, which is what happened. I swear the site was down within an hour. You can join in all of that, these Clothes Horse adventures where we fight crime and injustice and look at photos <laughs> and share facts and whatever else we do on Instagram at Clothes Horse Podcast. As a reminder... You can reach out anytime for the sources I use for the information I share here and on social media. Not to brag or anything, but I have a lot of bookmarks and I'm down to share. I also am just going to ask this again. If you have a story about Etsy or something really important about your experiences selling on Etsy to share, please reach out to me. I'm hoping to write and research the script for the Etsy sode, as I'm calling it, in the coming weeks. So call me, email me, whatever you need to do. DM me. I just want to hear about it. I want to make sure I'm covering all the important issues. And don't forget, if you have a question, an episode idea, or a story to share, please reach out. You can call the hotline at 717-925-7417. There's also the old-fashioned way, which is via email and I'm very excited to say that I have a new official, like actually costs money email address. It's amanda at clotheshorse.world. I also this week bought the URL for our forthcoming blog, clotheshorse.world. And we are putting together all of the processes and plans in terms of submissions and like project management. I mean, there's a lot of really boring stuff like that involved in projects like this. <laughs> We're putting all that together and we will be organizing a Zoom meeting for all interested contributors in about two weeks. You'll get an email from us about it. If you haven't reached out yet and you're still interested in contributing, please drop me a line so we can get you an invite to that meeting. 
If you want to meet some other Clothes Horse listeners, because this is all about the community we're building, join the Clothes Horsing Around Facebook group, and I'll share a link to that in the show notes. If you like hearing the sound of my voice, and of course you do, right? (laughs) Please check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We talk about the trends that shape our lives. And this week is part two of our conversation about Pantone and the colors that defined a generation. You'll get to hear me wax poetic about my undying love for millennial pinks. So you don't want to miss that. And next week, this is kind of like a spoiler alert here. We're going to be starting a series about the early aughts, and oh my goodness, I think we thought at least it was going to be like one, maybe two episodes, but I think we already have five episodes planned, so get ready to reminisce about Juicy, Paris Hilton, and the dawn of reality television. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye! Bye!